0: we're going to have to uh, get honest this morning. It's going to be a tough one for you. You don't want to tell me the truth and I don't want to tell you the truth. There's a few things you don't want me to know about you and there's a few things I don't want to know about you and there's a few things you don't want to know about me and I don't want you to know about those things either. Just being honest. So first off, how many of you honestly, just just be honest, okay? And if you can't raise your hand just, you know, make a grumbling noise in your throat or something. How many of you have honestly thought you could do a better job of governing either our nation or our state or your county or your municipality? How many of you have ever thought, if I was in that seat of leadership, I would... How many of you have thought that thought? Come on. Okay. there's a You know, we need to clear our throat on that one, right? How many of you have ever... Okay, this is, it's a wide gamut of things you have to admit, but how many of you have ever looked at your parents? And some of you, I know your parents have been passed for a few years, but you looked at your parents and you looked at your friends and your parents looked at your friends and they said, I don't like you to have these friends. And you said, well, I want to be friends with these friends. And you have this sort of rebellious issue with your friends and your parents don't like your friends and the, the back and forth dynamic between your friends and your, fam- and your, and your parents, not a, not a good one. How many of you have had that dynamic? When I was 12 years old, my dad asked me to not be friends with my best friend. He just said, I think he's not a good influence on your life. Ten years later, uh, my dad, in his adulthood, my, my best buddy, Jason, my dad said, you know, let's just make him part of our family and invite him to Christmas. He did a complete reversal on that. But at 12 years of age, my dad said, I don't think you should be friends with him. He's a bad influence on your life. All right. Honesty week continues. How many of you have had trouble, and if your in-laws are in the room, don't raise your hand, but if, if, how many of you have had trouble with an in-law? A brother-in-law, a father-in-law, somebody, you know, along the way, right? Now how many of you, how many of you have ever looked at an employer who made you tense. They told you what to do, and you didn't want to do what you were supposed to do. And maybe you led other people. You were in middle management, you know, in the middle. And this boss was saying, you do this. And these people down here are going, I ain't going to do that. And you're back and forth. You're caught in the middle between these things. How many of you have ever felt tension between coworkers and employer or maybe just with an employer yourself? Some of you are lying. I know it. But, but we felt this, right? These are feelings. Now, how many of you have felt all those things about the same people? Nobody, right? But the story that we're kind of walking through today is the story about uh, we're in the life of David, right? And it's the story of a guy who God just hands to David. And he says, here is a guy of all the people in the world. It's maybe the least likely person I can think to be the best support to David. But of all the mighty men and all the people who come alongside David, even his wife, you know, who happens to be this guy's sister, literally, is not nearly the support that this one man was. And this guy is absolutely just unexpectedly the best person maybe in the whole story of David outside of David himself this is the guy who just shines most brightly to me personally he's David's best friend and yet he's also David's brother-in-law David's married to his wife and he's also David's leader as Saul is the king and Jonathan Saul's son is one of the he's the crown prince and David is kind of underneath that leadership structure, and he's caught in between all of these different dynamics. He's actually David's best friend, and so there's this kind of issue there. But then there's this, you know, there's, I haven't watched it, but there's a, a television show called The Game of Thrones, and it's about leadership and all that. So I haven't watched even one episode of it. But I'll say that in this Game of Thrones, David has been anointed to be king by God. Samuel anointed him with oil, said, you're going to be king. And Jonathan was supposed to be king. And Saul's absolutely sure that he should be king. And that when he dies, Jonathan should be king. And Jonathan's gonna say, no, it's okay, I think David should be king. You know, you, you, did you follow all that? You know, I would like to see these people go on Dr. Phil. You know, the television show. I would just like to see a psychologist sit down with them and deal with all the dynamics. Josh Hostetter and I had so much fun this week talking about this story. He's a, he's a therapist, uh, a counselor, a licensed counselor. Josh Hostetter is our discipleship pastor. And I said, so what about this psychological disorder? He said, oh yeah, that could be there. And he, by the end, literally, I got home one night and there was a book in a, wrapped in a bag and a whole bunch of charts of all the psychological disorders, social misadjustments of our culture. And he said, look at all these different Things and he had notes for me to look at this person and that person and say, you know, they had a problem with this, that, and the other thing. That's really. Interesting, isn't it? And you get all of those things kind of in one story in 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're not going to take the time to read the whole chapter this morning, but I'm going to walk you through the story, and we're going to develop some points because Jonathan is just absolutely one of those persons who, if you have trouble managing your relationships in your life, I don't think anybody's had a more difficult position managing relationships and yet has done it better than Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel who will never be king who actually is going to stay loyal to his dad to the point where he actually ends up dying and being killed because he's loyal to his dad, even as he's loyal to God's plan for King David, and says, no, you're going to be the king, not me, even though he's the man in power. I heard it on a television show. Actor Joe Morton, uh, a few months ago, said this line, and it was on one of the shows of our time, I don't remember which show, but he actually said, you know, when you become in power, you change. You are no longer the person that you used to be. And power had changed King Saul. Uh, Morton says that when you actually become president of the United States or any other leadership position and somebody talks to you, they're not actually talking to you. They're talking to power. And that power exists if it's not careful for one reason, and that's to make sure that that power is self-perpetuating, right? Saul wanted to make sure that his leadership was going to continue to remain unchallenged, and David's leadership was definitely starting to encroach upon King Saul. You remember there was this little song, a ditty, that the women of Israel started to sing. King Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Oh, to hear women sing that. You know, what rapper or what VH1 or MTV artist would not somehow be absolutely jealous? And Saul was. He tried to kill David repeatedly. And in the story today, he's actually going to try to kill his own son. Interesting how power changes this. Lord Acton, a uh, British philosopher from the last century, was is quoted as saying this line, and it's been quoted often. One of the Nixon administration guys who came to Christ, Chuck Colson, was famous for saying it, and that's that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And Saul's heart had grown corrupted, and his leadership had grown absolutely marginalized because God had become this this kind of connected uh, deity with David and not with him anymore. And Jonathan recognized this, and he said, my heart goes with David, and whatever God's going to do with David, I'm going to go with that. In the story today, David has become aware of the fact that Saul is looking for his life. He's trying to kill him. And he goes to Jonathan, and he says, your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan's going to say, no, he's not. My dad would not do that. My dad would tell me if he was distrustful of you. And David says, no, he really is. He's trying to kill me. And Jonathan says, let me let me explain. In fact, we'll just read. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 20. It says this, Jonathan said, far be it from me or from you. I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you. Would I not tell you myself? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field and they hatch a plan out in that field. They hatch a plan where there's a feast coming up every first of the month. The Israelite household, King Saul's household would gather with all of the generals of his army. And David was one of those generals and he was mighty and doing all this great stuff. And they, they were supposed to gather and meet together and David isn't going to show up and Jonathan's going to watch and see what's going to happen. And what the, the, response of Saul is going to be a clue as to whether Saul is against David or for him. And Jonathan is going to watch. And they develop this kind of agreement that David and Jonathan are going to find out what's going on, and then Jonathan's going to let David know. Here's a next little snippet from 1 Samuel 20. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord, whatever happens in this situation, whatever the king does, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. How'd you like to say that when you started to think that your dad might be your friend's enemy. Your employer is now against your brother-in-law, who happens to be your best friend, who also happens to be one of the military generals in your army that you're working with, and maybe the person you're most attached to in the world. And God and, and Jonathan just says, okay, God is the judge. Let him figure it out. And what I know is he needs to take vengeance on David's enemies. And maybe, just maybe, although I'm not believing it yet, says Jonathan, my dad's one of those. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved, to, loved him as he loved his own soul. We're going to fast forward to the end of the story. And here's what happens just between there. And that's that Saul and Jonathan have this meal and David's seat is empty. And the first day, Saul says nothing. And Jonathan's just looking, watching, eyeing him up. But the second day, he's not there. And he says something, and Jonathan responds, and then it says this. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as, that's, that's a way of really saying you're shaming your mom, by the way, if you wonder, that's a Hebrewism. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has David done? But Saul, now realize that he does this twice to David. He hurls a spear at David a couple of different times and tries to kill him. But here he's actually, now just think about this, the madness of power for a second. You know, just aside, that's not the point for this morning. But think about this, that Saul is absolutely obsessed with the fact that Jonathan is going to be king after him, right? And yet look what he does. Therefore, send him and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul's father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Verse 33, but Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. You want your son to be king, and yet you take him out of all chance of being in the kingship by killing him, except for Jonathan moves, apparently, and he escapes. So Jonathan now knew, and this is an understatement, that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. You can see the obsessiveness and power of power in this story, can't you? You can see how it's eaten away at Saul's mind and it's kept him from thinking reasonably, and he's now trying to kill the same person that he's trying to enthrone, and he's he's caught in this triangle of relationships that are very unhealthy. That would under, that's what Dr. Phil would say, right? you got to get out from these relationships. You've got to find new friendships. This isn't healthy for Jonathan. And yet what God is going to do with Jonathan is say, you're here in the right place at the right time and let me walk with you through it because it's going to do amazing things. And, and Jonathan is actually somebody who's going to make a large difference. One last little bit, he comes out and he talks to David and he does this. He sends a boy. They have an agreement that he's going to shoot arrows. And if he shoots the arrows over here, then it means that Saul's not against David. But if he shoots the arrows far beyond this rock pile in which David's going to hide, then the agreement is that means that David should run for his life because Saul's after him. And he does exactly that. He shoots the arrows way out there, makes the boy chase him, and it's the sign to David. And then he sends the boy back to the town where he's from, and he says, listen, let's talk you and me and David, and this is how it goes. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the more. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have, sw- we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. This is the second-to-last parting of Jonathan and David, this great friendship that had been birthed. It should have been one of those things where they did Christmas and Easter together every year, right? I know Christmas and Easter weren't really back then, but just imagine that those family holidays, Jonathan and David, David was married to Michael, Jonathan's sister. Saul was David's father-in-law. This relationship should have pulled them together, and they had probably envisioned, we're going to walk through life together. There's one more passage I want you to look at. This is just absolutely amazing to me. And this is from 1 Samuel 23. This is the last time they're ever going to see each other. I'll read it from the screen. It says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Zith at Horush. That's the desert on the southern part of Israel. It's in the middle of no man's land. He's in a cave. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horush and strengthened his hand in God. Now, I've thought about this. If there's one thing that God... I would like God to say about me. If there's one thing, I would love for God to say that I strengthened people's hands in God. You know, sometimes in the Old Testament, little tiny lines are a really big deal. You know, we're used to lots of words having lots of meaning, but sometimes these authors put gigantic meaning in tiny little words. And and this might be the most important line that you'll ever read about Jonathan and David's relationship. In the middle of Saul trying to kill David and in the middle of David running for his life through the southern part of Israel and all of these deserts and hiding out in caves and doing all this different stuff, Saul's son, Jonathan, is going to rise and go to David and he's going to go to him and he's going to, I don't even know what that means except for something about Jonathan's heart strengthens David's resolve. He's afraid. We have all sorts of psalms in the Old Testament about this, where David's writing and saying, God, where did you go? I'm going to die. You told me I'm going to be king. I'm not even going to make it to my 30th birthday. How in the world can you tell me that I'm going to be king when I'm not going to be alive? And he writes these psalms back and forth. They go over and over again. They're beautiful psalms, and, and yet signs of a soul that's really aching and in difficulty and Jonathan shows up and he understands all this about David and he says I'm going to strengthen his hand in God look at what he says and he said to him do not fear for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you you shall be king over Israel that means Jonathan's not going to be king over Israel Jonathan's still hoping to be alive for this and he says and I shall be next to you Saul my father also knows this why is Saul driven to madness Because God has ordained David to be king. And the minute Saul knew that, he got angry with God, angry with David, eventually angry with Jonathan, and he tries to kill him. He's becoming insane. You know, sometimes what we call insanity is actually just saying no to God, right? And the outworking of saying no to God more often and more often. And when we never quite get to the place where we agree with God about what's going on, we just start to unravel. He's too powerful. Our brains don't get a world where he's not in charge. And yet our hearts don't like to make him in charge either. We're really stuck. You know, in Romans 7, Paul will write about this and say, what a wretched man am I? Who's going to save me from this body of sin and death? Because I'm in the middle of doing all these things I don't want to do. But I know God's called me to bigger and better. What a wretched man and I, even St. Paul said it. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. That's the last time Jonathan and David will ever see each other, as far as we know. David will go on to be king. Jonathan will go on to die in northeast Israel in a terrible battle on Mount Gilboa, he and his father. It will be a trail, a, tra- a terrible moment. I love Jonathan. For all that, Just I understand it's a terrible story in some ways, but for all that, think about this man who finds it in his heart to strengthen David's hand, the anointed of the Lord, and completely unexpectedly, David's not anointed because David's great. David's great because David's anointed. You know that, right? There's a real difference between people who God chooses because he says, look at that person. They're beautiful and shiny and all these great things. That's not what David was. God actually chose David because he said, this is a guy I can work with and I'm going to make him great because of my anointing. And all Jonathan Jonathan had more going for him than David ever did. And yet Jonathan says, listen, I'm going to decide that whatever God says about this issue is what I'm going to believe. I'm going to go after God's plan, not my plan. And if that means I'm going to say no to power and the kingship, so be it. If that means David's king instead of me, no problem. If that means that my dad, when he's wrong, I'm going to stand up against him and still honor him, no problem, I'll still do that. And I'm not going to get some sort of sad kind of codependent, weak spirit inside of me that says, you know, woe is me because God took me from this point and lured me down here. Jonathan never shows a sign of what I call the martyr complex. You know, sometimes with my kids, I'll adjudicate one of those conflicts that families are constantly famous for, right? And I'll, I'll say, this kid did this wrong and this kid did, okay, you guys separate, you do this, you do that. And one of those kids, the, 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 the lip sticks out, you know? And they go around and they walk so slowly about whatever they are supposed to do. Maybe it's a task that I've given them, and it will take an hour and a half if it should have taken 10 minutes. Because why? Their heart is in this sad little, oh, woe is me place, right? We have a saying in our family that we, we hope as you walk away from that sort of adjudication that you don't trip on your lip, you know? And that's what I say. And I, If anybody had the right to trip on their own lip, it was Jonathan. And yet he doesn't. He says, God is going to make you king. And I'll hopefully have the blessing of standing next to you. Is this fair? Anybody feel unfair about this thing? This guy is going to do it right all the way through. And at the end of it, he's going to die. And he's going to say, that's okay, because I would rather have God's will than mine. That's really tough to say. I don't know if anybody can say it until they're faced with the circumstances that Jonathan was faced with. And in Jonathan's life, looking at this situation, he now understands that He's saying, okay, this is what I've got to do. If we just think somehow that we would do that if we were him, I, I'm not sure i buy it. I don't think I know whether I have that commitment. In fact, I kind of doubt I do. Jonathan's one of the people in the Bible who shines maybe the most brightly. I want to kind of show the relationships. This this is more and more like Dr. Phil. I tried to emulate him, you know. He's got these little charts. Have you ever seen Dr. Phil's little charts? And he has all these, you know, this person and that person, these relationships. These are the relationships in Jonathan's life. First, he has a relationship with God. Then he has a relationship with the king, who happens to be his dad, also his employer. Then he has a relationship with David, who's his brother-in-law, best friend, and also a coworker. And then he has a relationship, and this is when you know I'm really getting psychological. He has a relationship with himself, right? We all do. We all have to look at ourselves and evaluate, are we doing it right? Jonathan has that sort of thing. And in each one of these relationships, I don't know anybody who ends up on the right side of right better than Jonathan. First off, he decides that he's going to agree with God. And that agreement with God is going to empower every other relationship. You know, when you think about Saul and Jonathan and David, one of the things Saul's thinking is, Jonathan, it's either me or David. You can't have both, right? You ever hear somebody say that? Well, you can be friends with them, but now you're not going to be friends with me if you're friends with them. I've got family members who have tried to pull this off and said, we're going to develop teams in our family and we're going to have a conflict and this side's going to be this side. It's like the family feud, except it's not funny, you know? And and this conflict rages in the middle of us. And we have this feeling that if we're in the midst of conflict, those around us should side with us and against the people that we have conflict with. Why can people sit in the middle? And yet Jonathan is called by God to do something very much in the middle. He's called by God to honor the king. we're going to talk about that this morning. He's not allowed off the hook because somehow he's on David's side. He's actually supposed to honor his father and he's supposed to stick with. I love these moments when the whole computer just, you know, did you see that? wasn't just me, right? The whole thing just kind of did a little dance and came back to us. I don't know why that happens. We'll just have to hope it doesn't happen again. But the king, he's supposed to honor the king and he's supposed to honor his parent. And frankly, Jonathan does that all the way to the end of his life, even as the king is trying to kill his best friend. He's called by God to love David and to give in this relationship where he's going to hand him and say, I'm going to strengthen his hand in God. I'm going to support, encourage, and help David to become what he's supposed to become because that is the plan of God. And he's going to do those things at the same time without developing the martyr complex on the far right where he looks at himself and says, no, I'm still a good guy. I'm not somebody who God's rejected because I'm a terrible person. I'm just somebody who's not the right guy for this job. I don't know why God makes that choice. But the almighty God of the universe loves me. And so I'm called to know that everybody else is supposed to feel good about that. These, these situations, it's without God. I don't know how anybody would ever do what Jonathan does. And it starts, of course, with that one on the left. He agrees with God. You know, when you when we talk about agreeing with God, all of us have to do that. This past week, as I prayed for Ted, I was thinking, okay, what am I agreeing with? I don't know what God thinks about Ted. I don't. We want to bless Ted. We want to see Ted do what I always want to bless people. But every now and then I've sat by somebody's bedside and I've realized it's the will of God that this is their time. And the most gracious thing we can do is to know that that person is going to walk off into the everlasting arms of a gracious creator and savior who loves them and will take them to be with him for all eternity if they know and trust Jesus for their personal salvation. What a great thought, right? What we're trusting God for and what we're agreeing with God about, we have to know what he thinks. And we don't always know that. His ways are higher than ours. And yet in this story, God had revealed his will. And Jonathan says, I'm just going to go with you. You shall be king over Israel, he says to David. You are going to be king because the almighty God, the ancient of days, has said this little shepherd boy who is never in the royal lineage and who's never from one of the aristocratic families of Israel, he's going to be the guy who God has chosen. Okay, I'm going to go with it. You know, seeking to know what God thinks and then choosing to agree with him is not an easy process. Wouldn't you agree? There's this moment in my life when I didn't forgive, and I I always believed I'm a forgiving person. You know why I believe I'm a forgiving person? Because the Bible tells me I'm supposed to be a forgiving person. So as soon as the Bible tells me that, my self-identity says, well, I better be forgiving. Then one day somebody says, well, have you forgiven that person? I say, yeah, but I, I haven't, you know, let go of it. Oh, you haven't let go of it. What does that mean? I started to think about that for a while, and I realized that I wasn't agreeing with God about his forgiveness for that person. They had really wronged me. I actually started to pray, and I said, God, you know that fifth line in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, I know God is forgiving, right? He forgave Peter for denying him. He forgave David for killing one of his friends and sleeping with his wife. He forgives people for a lot of bad things. And the person who'd done some wrong to me hadn't done anything close to what King David had done or even what I'd done to Jesus. I've let Jesus down more than anybody's ever let me down. And yet I couldn't forgive. And I got to that fifth line one day. I was walking. I remember where I was walking and I was praying. And I said, God, you know, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive. And I stopped. And I thought, I don't agree with God about the fact that he's forgiven this person. Why don't I agree with them? Because I don't forgive them. So why don't I forgive them? Well, I know I forgive them because I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I have to forgive them. The Bible tells me I have to forgive them. And I realized that I, just because I said I do doesn't mean I actually do. Just because I want to believe and agree with God, just because I state it out in public and say, God said this, so I'm saying it too, doesn't mean that in my soul I'm okay with that. And whatever Jonathan's doing is far beyond just stating something and saying, yes, of course I agree with God. No, he's acting upon it to the point where he can take somebody who's supplanting his kingship and saying, yes, Lord, I will absolutely support him. I will encourage him when he's depressed. I will show up with money for him if he's absolutely impoverished. I will do what it takes for this man. I don't know what it means that that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. I don't know what that means. It might have been money. I mean, David was literally at points probably starving right? He's wandering around this desert. If you see it, it is as barren as any rock quarry in parts of that that land. It's not like he could just pick raspberries from the ground or something. I mean, this man was absolutely in need at points. Whatever Jonathan does, he says, I'm going to put all of my agreement with God behind it, and I'm going to show no signs of emotional duress. I'm just going to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's tough, right? Wouldn't you agree? It's easy to say, yes, Lord, we will follow you. Peter, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, says, yes, I will follow you even to death. And then Jesus is almost dying. He's in the process of of his own trial and going through all this stuff. And what does Peter do? I don't know that guy. We agree with God like Peter a lot. We say, yes, I agree with you, God. I love what you're going to do. And then in the moment when it looks like it's going to impinge on our own soul, when it kind of gets inside of us and asks us to believe in things that we're not comfortable with. We say, well, we're not going there. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. And Jonathan says, no, I agree with God. All the way to me not being king, all the way to, in some ways, looking like somebody betrays his own dad and yet honors him nevertheless. Jonathan does all that. In Matthew 6, Jesus says it this way, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I don't think we know what that verse means. I don't think we know what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. We tend to think that means giving a first fruit of our tithes and offerings and that sort of thing. Well, it does have to do with that, but you know, it's far beyond that. It's called agreeing with God about how he wants to build his kingdom. Every now and then I've watched God forgive somebody who I'm just not okay with God forgiving. I've watched him make successful people. I'm going, that person is a sinner. You ever felt that way? You've seen somebody who's ripped somebody off and God just seems to bless their lives afterwards. I had a counseling session last year where a guy, not in our church, not anybody, you know, but came to me and says, I just don't know what to do with the fact that God blesses this. And then he gave an example and he told me the whole story. I said, I I don't know what to do with that either. He said, what do you mean? You're a pastor. You got to know what to do with these situations. I said, I don't know. I know that if God's doing it, that you got to agree with it. But that said, I don't know what else to say because It's God. And we have to get ourselves in the place that he's up here and we're down there. This seek ye first the kingdom of God is a great verse we memorize in Sunday school, but it's actually one of the toughest verses on earth to accomplish. Paul's going to say it this way in Ephesians, and don't get stuck on the first part of it. The main point is not the first line. I've heard this verse quoted all my life, right? Don't be drunk with wine, it says. That's my translation, not the English standard version. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What's the emphasis here? Is it the negative or is it the positive? When Paul writes this, what he's saying is you're going to need stuff to get through life. We have all these shows on television. Uh, the, the Irish band U2 once called Talk Shows Confession. We got Maury Povich out there. And we got Dr. Phil out there. And we've got Jerry Springer, former mayor of Cincinnati. You've seen all these guys, right? And they're all walking through processes where people are in the midst of conflict. And I think they get in worse conflict because they're on those shows. I don't know why you go on one of these television shows. Dr. Phil actually tries to work things out. But, you know, we have those shows because people are trying to get past all the issues in their life. They don't know how to agree with God about those things. We don't know how to agree with God about those things. Sometimes I don't know how to agree with God about what's going on in my life. And what Paul says is you're going to be tempted to push the clutch in and the process of agreeing with God about things. What are you going to do if you do that? You're going to find a way to, quote, unquote, lubricate your situation. You're going to get drunk. It might not be alcohol. It might be drugs. Well, it might not be that either. It might be that you're going to become a gossip. But what you're going to do is if you don't agree with God, you're going to go someplace and you're going to do something that tries to keep your soul intact as the forces of the universe seem to collide against it. And Paul says there's another answer for this, guys. He says, don't get drunk with wine and don't go on Moripovich, and don't do any of this other stuff. Listen, be filled with the spirit. And what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? It means to listen to God and say, whatever you say, I want to agree with. And I want to see the spirit's power in my life. And then I want to see that spirit's power do things and the people who are depending on me. And frankly, not too many people have had so many things depend on them as Jonathan did. Saul's depending on what he does with God. David's depending on what he does with God. And frankly, his whole life, whether he's okay with all this or not, has to do with whether he's getting what he needs from God. Sometimes we struggle in our relationships with other people in the midst of all these conflicting situations because we go at it the wrong way. We don't take it to the Almighty. We don't say, yes, let me be filled with the Spirit. We don't say, let God's kingdom come. Instead, we say, I want my kingdom. And if God doesn't want my kingdom, well, then he's not my God. That is our line. Jonathan's going to agree with God, and he's going to take him seriously, and he's going to go, whatever God wants here, I'm going to go for. He does something else. He's just a good friend, isn't he? I love this story. You know, that friend of mine, Jason, who I mentioned earlier in the message, you know, the one my dad didn't like, my dad's grown to love him. By the way, you know, we have a great family relationship, and Jason is one of the closest people on earth to me. He's been close. I, I often think I didn't get in trouble in high school because I had Jason in my life, and Jason didn't get in trouble in high school because he had Josh in his life. We were those sorts of friends. We were good buddies who just kind of stayed on the right side of things for the most part. Eventually, we got in some trouble, but we won't go there. Again, I did. I told you I didn't want to admit everything this morning. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and he strengthened his hand in God. Sometimes people get the story of David and Jonathan wrong because the Bible continuously says that David and Jonathan love each other. And in our world, we're not allowed to say that we love each other, right? Two guys saying, I'm not allowed to tell the women in our church I love them because, whoa, you know, that wouldn't be cool. I'm not allowed to say I love the guys in our church because, whoa, that wouldn't be cool either. Who who can you say you love At the end of the day, I was in a restaurant with one of my friends, he's a guy, and we were having... uh, Lunch, and we got to the end, he was another pastor. We got to the end of this lunch, and we, we tried to hug. You know? And there was this awkward moment about which way we turned in this whole thing. We started laughing about the whole thing, we just kinda cracking up. But you know why I was hugging that guy? It's cause I love him. And people, I saw the people around us were like, whoa. <laughs> There's two guys that are hugging in the middle of this restaurant. And it was just a quick hug, you know, just the bang on the back thing. But you know what? I do love that guy. There's nothing weird about that. We shouldn't have to be weird about this stuff. Our world has lied to us and said everything is sexual and messed up. There's nothing messed up about David and Jonathan. They got it right. What's wrong with us that we can't figure this out and just go, yes, 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 I love this person, but I love them with a love that's good and healthy and whole in Christ, right? Love in the Bible's definition means willing God's best for the people in our lives. Nobody does that better than Jonathan. In the midst of this conflict, he shows up in David's life. Let me encourage you, man. You know, last night I was on the way home and I called one of my friends and his sister-in-law. They thought she might have brain cancer and he had surgery. she had surgery this past week. I didn't see it coming. All of a sudden on Facebook, I see this prayer request. Please pray. Tomorrow is a big surgery for me. I'm like, this person's in our neighborhood. Don't, they don't go to our church. But I called them and said, what's going on? You know, we had this whole conversation. So last night I wondered how the conversation went. And we got in this conversation that was so interesting. I'm asking about his sister-in-law. Surgery went great. Doesn't look like cancer great. And he says, what about your life? And he started to ask me questions. My life has been tense for the last five days. Maybe it's been tense longer than that. But the last five days, I've really felt it. You can hear my voice. I got sick this week. I've had all this stuff. And he started to ask me questions. I said, yeah, we're making it through. He said, no, really, how's your life? You know, those are valuable people, right? They show up and you're like, how, how are you doing? He wants my marriage to do well. He wants my finances to do well. He wants our church to do well. And he's praying for those things. And he's saying, I'm going to strengthen that man's hand in God. I have a suspicion that I'm a better pastor this morning because I talked to that guy last night. I have a confession about this whole sermon. I didn't feel like it came together. You're halfway through it and you're going, I don't know. Maybe it didn't come together. But last night at 1130, I said, I don't know if it came. Shelby was asleep. And she rolled over in bed and she kind of started to sleep talk. This is true. And I said, Shelby, can you pray for me? And she said, yeah, I guess. And I I wasn't, she might not have been sleep. I wasn't sure whether she was awake or asleep. It was that halfway in between. And she prayed for me. My mind cleared after that. God started to work. I laid in bed for an hour thinking about First Samuel, thinking about Jonathan and David, thinking about what God was doing in this story. You know, we need people who come alongside us and will God's best in our lives. You need that person. And frankly, the people around you need that person. And David and Jonathan had that in each other. And Jonathan, against all odds, says, I'm going to be that guy. What a powerful message that is, right? I love David and I'm going to stick with David. And why do I love David? Because God loves David and I love what God loves. And that means that I'm going to want what God's best is for this person. You know, God's best for Jonathan was not that he should be king. You know, we're we're kind of lied to in our culture that the best for us is whatever is the biggest, the most expensive, the highest leadership level. Whatever it is, we should have the best of it. And that is the best for us, right? The Almighty God of the universe knows what we don't. That is a lie. Some of us shouldn't have a lot of money because we can't handle a lot of money. Some of us were not created to be leaders. Some of us should not be people who are called to all this stuff, and we shouldn't think we are. And Jonathan said, you know what? Maybe God made me to not be a king. I have to be okay with that, he says. And it frees him up to say, yes, I will will God's best for the man who is to be king. What would this story be like if Jonathan had a different heart? Can you imagine? Wouldn't take any difficulty to imagine that, right? We see it all over our world. If you're not about my best interest, then I'm out of here. And my best interest is whatever I think my best interest is. Jonathan understood God's plan and he loved what God was doing and he said, I'm going to help it happen. That's what a good friend is. A good friend is not just somebody who sticks with you no matter what. A good friend is somebody who sticks with God's plan in your life no matter what. And there's a huge difference between those things. If somebody comes in your life and says, no matter what you do, I'll be your friend. Say, please don't because there's some things you could do that they should just say, I'm going to walk away. And when they walk away, what they're going to be saying is, I'm not going to enable Satan's plan in your life because I've been looking for God's plan in your life. I want to see you blessed. And I know that has to do with God and what he wants to do in you. For David, that made him a king, and that makes this a very romantic story. But for many people, that doesn't make them kings. That makes them something else. And God's best is for them to be who God's plan is for them to be. And our job is to come alongside and say, yes, we love you where you're at. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world. You don't need to be the most beautiful. You don't need to be the the richest. You don't need to be any of these things. God loves you, and so do I, and I want what's best for you. Great story. Jonathan does this in John 13 Most of the things I thought about this week came from that last night of Jesus' life where he's going through these relational issues, right? He's got these 12 men he's walked through life with for the last two and a half to three years, and one of them is betraying him. And these are the words that come from that passage, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus looks at these disciples and says, please, guys, love each other. I got a call yesterday about some people who failed in leadership, people who affected my life. And it was in a magazine. This is one of those national scandals. And it's not a big failure. Frankly, it's a small failure. And the guy was like, what do you think about all this? I said, I don't want to think about all this. I don't want to think at all about this. I want to love that guy. The person that was in the storyline in the magazine, believe it or not, I had met, met him. In college, I was at a party with him, a, a good party, you know? We were at this party and he was there and he seemed like a really great guy. He got caught doing something that, it's marginal, whatever. By this, all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. You know you don't love somebody when you hope they fail, right? When you hope that they do well and whatever they're doing and whatever, and most importantly, God has for them, then you know that you love them for real. John thirteen thirty five is a great line. People don't know whether we're disciples of Jesus when we don't know and don't know how to love each other and be friends with each other. Jonathan does this other thing well, and I know this is almost, this is really close to psycho mumble jumble, right? We don't like pastors talking psychological stuff, but the world of psychology is a great world. Honestly, we benefit from it all the time, and it goes all over the place. But, you know, the fact that Jonathan respects himself is really powerful in this story to me because a lot of people face challenges like this, and they don't look at themselves and say, God likes me. They start to say, well, God likes David, so I'm going to be about God liking David, but I'm not going to be about God liking me. It can only be one of, one of the other ways, right? It's got to be the yin or it's got to be the yang. It's got to be this or it's got to be that. I'm not going to be okay with a God who is on David's side unless I just decide that I'm not on my side anymore. And Jonathan says, no, I'm on my side. I'm still a guy beloved of the Father. I'm still somebody who's respected and cared for, somebody who God loves. He says this, I will be next to you. If you caught that little line, it's a powerful line in 1 Samuel 23. In other words, he's saying, you know, you're going to reign, David, and I'm going to be your chief advisor. I'm going to be your supporter. I'm going to have your back. And I'm also going to be somebody that people respect, and you're going to be able to trust me. He has this sense that he's still got some ambition in life. He's still supposed to move forward. He's still still supposed to develop himself. Respecting God's wishes for our lives, even as we give to others, means respecting ourselves. You know, Jesus said this word on the last night before before he was crucified as well. It says, Great love has no one than this or greater love has no one than this, say some translations, Then someone lay down his life for his friends. I put that on there not because Jonathan lays down his life for David. He doesn't completely lay it down. He says, I'm going to continue to live. What Jonathan's life is all about is the realization that God is laying down his life for you and for me. You know, sometimes in a counseling session, I will literally say to somebody, you need to respect yourself more. And they'll say, Why? Have you seen what I've done? I'll say, because God loves you and he still has a plan for your life. And it is a great plan. It might mean you have to admit some things. It it might mean you have to confess some things. It might mean that your life is going to be broken for a little bit, but he still loves you. We get this woe is me attitude, right? My kids, back to my children and the trip on your lip syndrome, sometimes they'll even say it. They'll say, well, we know that you love so-and-so more than us. And we like to think sometimes that God loves, and we don't admit we think this, but we think God loves the person who's successful more than he loves me. Because God has a different plan for that person's life does not mean that God doesn't love you every bit as much. He just knows his plan for you. And when we agree with the Father about who we are and what we're supposed to be in the midst of, that whole thing just goes away. It evaporates like so many lies, and that's exactly what they are, right? Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down, his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life for you. And you're never allowed to take that back and say, you know what, I'm not worth it. Because he died for you. And he didn't ask your permission. He didn't show up and say, I'm only going to die for you if you're okay with this. No, he said, I love you. We had a, a moment this past week. I could cry over this moment right in this room. Journey kids, we started out talking about adoption. And I, I pictured all these kids, I described them as little babies. And you know, we have African American kids and Latino kids and white kids and Indian kids. All these kids are sitting in a circle. And I say, you know, this little baby, and I list the name, and they're all different colors. God loved that little baby, right? And that little kid, he went like this. Yeah. God loved me when I was just this little baby. Just, he loved the thought. And I went to the next age group over and I said, God loved this little baby. And I, little, Eight-year-old girl, oh, yeah, God loved me. She shone. She was so excited. And then there's one of the kids in our 10-year-old group. She's getting almost into middle school, and she's gotten harder every year, and I've watched her getting harder. And I said, oh, and I, I said her name. I won't say it here, but I said her name. And I said, you know, when when you were born, God loved you. And She looked at me, and she said, her head wobbled back and forth, and it was with deep conviction. She wasn't lying. She wasn't just trying to get attention. I know about her story. She's got a lot of reason to think nobody loves her. And God loves her, right? And she wants to give that up and say, Jesus didn't die for me. God doesn't love me. Maybe my mom and dad don't love me, so how can God love me? And God's saying, I love you, and I don't know what happened to your mom and dad. They messed up. But I love you, and I love them. Jonathan had this perspective in his life that there was a God who would lay down his life for Jonathan. That would happen a thousand years into the future, but Jonathan understood the heart of God in this story. And he says, I'm not sacrificing myself here. I'm just agreeing with God about the whole thing. And there's a massive difference. No martyrdom complex, no no lower lips stuck out, no wobbling head saying God doesn't love me. No, God loves Jonathan. Frankly, I don't think Jonathan was loved any less than King David was loved. There was one last little thing, and then we got to go. It's one last piece that Jonathan does. He honors his dad. I don't know how he honors his dad. His dad was completely dishonorable. He tries to kill his own son. He tries to kill his son-in-law. He tries to kill all of these people, and he spends Israel's resources not fighting the Philistines who are attacking them, but chasing one of the generals of their own army who refuses to fight back. We would call that a huge fraudulent activity if our president did it, right? We would say that this is somehow a misappropriation of our nation's resources to go after King David, who's a loyal servant, rather than the Philistines. At the end of Jonathan's life, he's going to die next to his dad. They're going to be in the northern part of Israel, and the Philistines are going, who are from the southwest, are going to get all the way across to Israel because Saul's so busy fighting David, and he's going to kill. They're going to kill Saul and hang him on a wall. And I've been to that city in Israel where they hung Saul on the wall, dead. And the whole reason why is because this man decided to make jealousy his big thing. And he decided to not manage the relationships in his life. And somehow at that end, even as Jonathan had showed up in David's life and loved him, he sat next to his dad and he died, along with all their soldiers, along with all of their vanguard, along with all of Saul's sons. They all died all at once. The whole line. Think about that. That is loyalty. You know, the fifth commandment says that we're to honor our parents, right? And we tend to think that means honor them when they're honorable. Saul was anything but honorable, and Jonathan said, I'm going to honor him, and I'm going to honor him to the end. No matter how mad, no matter how crazy, I'm not going to perform a coup d'etat. I'm not going to do any of these crazy things. I'm going to be about the plan of God first, but I'm going I'm to stay there with my dad, and I'm going to love him, and I'm going to die with him. That is an amazing boy. That's an amazing man. Romans 13.1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It's easy to think of Jonathan and Saul as father and son, but one of the things about us is we know we don't like our leadership. I don't know which party you're from, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. You've said words you shouldn't say. Let's just admit it, right? We look at the governing authorities. We look at our parents, our leaders, the cops. It doesn't matter. Leadership structure, we have problems with this in our world. And God says, listen, you're supposed to respect these people. When Paul writes this Romans 13, one passage, you know who he's writing it about? Most likely there was a Roman general who became king, who became Caesar, and his name was Nero, and he was a madman. There's probably never been a worse leader on earth than Nero. And Nero very likely killed Peter and maybe killed Paul. And he wrote this before he died, and he said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, even if it means this man. I don't know how you treat your parents or those who are in authority over you. It starts with parents, and it doesn't stop when you turn 18, despite what our culture tells us. We're supposed to honor these people. And when they're not honorable, honor them anyway. And Jonathan's life is a testimony, uh, uh, an amazing witness to the fact that you can love God to the point where he can empower you to do all these different things. You can love the people he's called you to love, and it's going to be tough, but you can do it. You can respect and honor authority even in the midst of difficulty. You can absolutely do this without a martyrdom complex, as long as we have agreed with God about the whole thing, what he's saying. As long as we've decided to be filled with the Spirit, as long as we've decided that it's about His kingdom and not ours, that's pretty difficult to do. Let me pray for you.